0: This is The Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. We welcome back to the program author Nick Bunker. How you doing, Nick? Great. It's great to be with you both. Well, good to have you on again. Several years ago, Nick Bunker was a guest on The Historian's, discussing his book An Empire on the Edge, How Britain Came to Fight America. That book was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. And today, we're talking with Nick Bunker about His new book, An Account of the Early Life of Benjamin Franklin, called Young Benjamin Franklin, The Birth of Ingenuity, is published by Knopf. Nick Bunker portrays Franklin as a complex-driven young man who elbows his way to success. Uh, Nick Bunker, the author was uh, educated at King's College in Cambridge and Columbia University. He worked as a reporter for the Liverpool Echo and the Financial Times. After leaving journalism, he was a stockbroker and investment banker. For many years, he served on the board of the Freud Museum, uh, based in the house in Hampstead in London where Sigmund Freud uh, had lived and actually, I believe, died. Uh, Nick Bunker now lives with his wife Susan uh, and their otter hound in Lincolnshire, uh, England, and joins us to talk about his new book about Benjamin Franklin. What, li- I mean, Benjamin Franklin is a very prominent figure in early American history, he's been written about countless times. What led you to want to write about the early life of Ben Franklin?
1: Well, it came out, really, of the the book that you mentioned, my previous book, Emperor on the Edge, which was all about the revolutionary crisis of of the 1770s. And Franklin came into that book in quite a big way. And while I was working my way through Franklin's correspondence, his papers from a period around about the time of the Boston Tea Party, I became fascinated by Franklin. I'd always been interested in Franklin, but I really became bitten by the Franklin bug. And I wanted to find a way of writing about Franklin where I could actually add value and talk about things that hadn't really been covered before. And the, the part of his life that has tended to be a bit neglected by historians is, is his early life, up to the age 40, partly because although we have his autobiography, there are relatively few, in fact, very few letters and papers of his survived from that era. So people have, have tended to leave it on one side. I felt that I could could add some value, not least because Franklin and his family were really anglo American at that stage i mean they they, they traveled back from the border across the Atlantic, and his father had been quite a recent immigrant, only been there for twenty years when in Boston when Franklin was born, so I felt I could actually shed new light on that period and i and i uh, so I set to work and, and i hope I've, I hope I've done so in the book
0: okay um In your book, you you use the word ingenuity, the birth of ingenuity. Why is that such an important word in the terms of uh, Franklin's life?
1: Well, you know, I do this really simple thing when I'm working on a, on, on a, on a character or, or an episode. I go through the words that they write, and I, and I count the words from are most common. I mean, it's, a, it's a really simple technique, but it actually works. And if you look at Franklin's autobiography and, indeed, his letters, you'll find that one of the words that he uses most frequently is, is either ingenious or ingenuity. He uses it in his autobiography, which is not a long book. He uses it about 20 times. Um, and whenever he wanted to praise somebody... For example, his father, um, he would call them ingenious, and so I said, "Well, you really get inside this word. Why was it so important to Franklin?" And that led me into kind of looking at the seventeenth century background, which was really the word "ingenuity" really sort of started being used uh, very enthusiastically in England in about 1660 or so, and it referred really to a combination of kind of scientific skills and also social skills, inventiveness, and there was kind of a, a kind of a vogue for this word. Um, really associated with people like Sir Isaac Newton and other figures of his era. And what Franklin did was kind of pick up these kind of English ideas from the 17th century and reapply them in America.
0: Mm. And would you say Franklin was ingenious himself?
1: Oh, definitely. I mean, what he meant by an ingenious person was somebody who was obviously clever, you know, I, I, I see learned and an inventive, but also imaginative um, and prepared to think outside the box. And I think those are
0: words you can definitely apply to Benjamin Franklin. uh, You are are from England, and you've undertaken uh, a lot of research into the Franklin family in England uh, before Benjamin's father came to America. What did you learn about his uh, ancestors? And I gather it kind of runs counter to what some other historians have been saying about uh, Franklin's uh, English ancestors.
1: Well, actually, funnily enough, before I did it, of course, Franklin himself, Frank himself, when he was in England in the 1750s, I actually tried to research his family history. And he went back to his family's uh, origins, to so the village where they lived in, Northamptonshire, which is about 50, 60 miles northwest of London. He did it himself. And so in many ways, I just took my cue from him. Again, one of the things I try to do is I try to take my cue from the people I'm writing about. I try to work out, well, what was important to them? If it was important to them, it should be important to us. And His family history was important to him, so I looked into it. Now, Franklin, because for all sorts of reasons to do with available archives and so on, of course I can find out more than Franklin could. Um, And the key point really is two things about the Franklins, or three things. First of all, they were craftsmen, they were very, very highly skilled craftsmen in a number of trades, particularly blacksmithing, which was one, and the dyeing of silk, which was another. Very highly skilled crafts that were being developed to a new pitch of excellence in England, in about 1660, 1670, 16, 1680. Secondly, they were very highly literate. Very, very highly literate. I mean, they were Presbyterians. They were very keen readers of the Bible and religious books. And that's something you can see in Franklin as well. And the third thing was that the Franklin family in England were very upwardly mobile. They were aspirational people. And they actually did much better than most historians have realized. What happened was, unfortunately, simply because of the accidents of, accident of early death and not having enough children, the family died out in England. Now, if they had not died out in England, I think they might have been a success in England. That's strange enough, as mm-hmm. Franklin was in America. And that's what people have missed, this, 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 the fact that the family were actually quite a substantial bunch. Um, Franklin's father came to America as a political refugee, as a religious refugee, and so he, if you like, gave up the advantages they had and then had to start all over again in America. And that's, again, another Franklin thing, mm-hmm. immigrant experience.
0: Yes, and... Let me ask you more about that. His uh, father, Josiah Franklin, was a political refugee. Uh, He he was not of the right religion. Is that the problem?
1: Uh, Well, it was 1683. Uh, That was a big year in English history. The problem in 1683 was this, that Charles II launched a kind of enormous crackdown on his political opponents. Uh, Charles II's opponents were the Whigs. WHIG, mm-hmm. who were essentially committed to the Protestant faith, the Protestant succession. They were generally associated with financial interests in the city of London. They were in favour of mm-hmm. civil liberties, uh, etc. And so they were developing the kind of ideas that then in America became part of the revolutionary creed of, of the 1770s. Now, as I don't the Whigs. They were opposed to Charles II. Charles II launched a kind of great purge and crackdown on them in 1683. And there were a number of Whigs at that time some of them members of the aristocracy, some of them merchants, and some of them people like Gisar Franklin, people who were, who were craftsmen, who decided to leave, and that's what Gisar Franklin did. Now, the irony of it is that six years later, five or six years later, the Whigs actually were triumphant in England in what was the uh-huh. glorious revolution. So Gisar could actually have gone back home, uh, but he didn't. He stayed in Boston because, in fact, he was actually on the winning side. So he never really needed to be a refugee in the first place, but fortunately because he was... Uh, we have the career of Benjamin Franklin in America. Mm.
0: And um, Josiah Franklin, what was his trade? What was his craft?
1: Well, he was a dyer of silk. Uh, and An interesting point that I discovered was that he actually trained in London. It's always been thought in the past that Josiah Franklin was, was a countryman, that he spent all his life in the countryside uh, or in small country towns. Uh, in fact, what I discovered was, much to my surprise, that he spent seven years in the 1670s training to silk buyer right in the heart of london and i think that's a really important point which is that it shows you that the franklin's from a very early stage before benjamin Franklin was born were already people who were very urban very much fallen and you know franklin was basically an urban kind of person um he did have some interest in agriculture and he had a bit of land out in the countryside and he liked traveling in the countryside but he was fundamentally a man of the street and the pavement and that had always been a kind of a Franklin family thing. They had spent an awful lot of time in London, doing all the kind of things you can do in a city, and learning all the kind of things you can learn in a city.
0: Hmm. Uh, Franklin certainly had a, a different background from uh, the other uh, founding fathers, like uh, John Adams or, or Thomas Jefferson, um, and he was also a lot older than those those guys in general. Um, yeah. uh, can you expand on that notion?
1: Well, it's a really important point, the fact that he, that he lived so much longer than, than, than most of his, of, his, of his contemporaries, most of his friends. Uh, and so there's really two important things. First of all, the world that he came out of, the world of the early 18th century uh, in England and America, was not the same as the world of, of John Allen or Jefferson. I mean, it was poorer, obviously, it was not so economically developed. It was probably cruder. It, it, it was a bit barbaric, actually, in some ways, um, in some areas. And... Also, the kind of experiences that he had had in in London and the experiences he had in in terms of the, the politics of the period were really very different. I mean, remember, right up until the 1760s, Franken really had no conception that he was ever going to be a rebel or revolutionary. I mean, he was a believer in the uh, in the British Empire, and you know, all, he, all he criticized was the people who were occupying the positions of authority in the British Empire, the, the kind of current team, if you like, but he was still committed to the notion of it. Um, and I think the other thing that's important is that, that when he came to write his autobiography, he was writing about a world that really no longer existed. I mean, it was really very alien. And so when I was writing the book, what I had to do was try and recreate for the reader the kind of world the Franklin inhabited in Boston about 1720, and then, and then in London, and then in Philadelphia, and and Philadelphia, particularly, you see, was really at a very early stage of its development. So it was kind of an uncrystallized sort of place, a bit raw, a bit unformed. And I was trying to get that across in the book.
0: Mm. You think it was uh, possibly more like the frontier, which we talk about in American history?
1: Well, actually, I mean the frontier wasn't far off. Um, if you take by about 1730, they'd got about. 60 miles inland. I mean, you've got to, by that time, the frontier would roughly have been around about the towns of Reading and Lancaster, Pennsylvania. That would have been the frontier, but also the Delaware River. Now it really wasn't far off. And one of the things, again, I was quite very keen to emphasize was the fact that from the earliest stage, uh, when he was in his 20s, Franklin knew and had friends who were people very heavily involved in frontier issues. I mean, he particularly had friends who were surveyors. In a fact, he in geography and maps and so on. And some of his best friends in, in Philadelphia were the people who were the surveyors. He used to go out to the frontier on behalf of the colony to draw maps, make land grants to settlers, and also to do diplomacy with, with the Native Americans. And, and I think that's something which hasn't really been sort of looked at. Most historians have tended to feel that Franklin didn't really get interested in frontier issues, shall we say, until about 1750, until the French and Indian War with the British. What I've shown is that really you've been interested back about maybe 20, 25 years earlier
0: than that. Our guest is Nick Bunker, who has a, a new book out called Young Benjamin Franklin, The Birth of Ingenuity. We'll have more with him in uh, just a moment. Just want to put in a word for the Historian's Podcast. We have uh, started our 2019 fundraising campaign. If you want to donate, you can go online to GoFundMe.com forward slash 2019 the Historians. If you'd rather uh, donate by mail, you can make out a check to me, Bob Cudmore, and send it to Bob Cudmore, 125 Horstman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. Uh, joining us is Nick Bunker, author of Young Benjamin Franklin, The Birth of Ingenuity. It's uh, published by Knopp. We've um, been talking about uh, the... Uh, Franklin's uh, ancestors in England. And, you know, I'm really kind of curious about this one thing. Um, Franklin did go back to England. He spent a lot of time uh, in his latest years in in France. That's quite remarkable to me. I mean, uh, it's not like he's, he's, uh, you know, uh, getting a, a flight by British Airways or something. Or did many people do that?
1: Well, i tell you what, my flight over here with British Air was so crowded and so uncomfortable I think I'd rather be on the boat with <laughs> France, <laughs> But uh, Well, more than you might think, uh, put it this way, the voyage time you see was, was about nine weeks or so if you were travelling westwards across the Atlantic from England. If you're going from, from America to England, it was really, you could do it in about five weeks. Um, and actually, oddly enough, it wasn't quite as dangerous as, as, as often it's assumed. You know, the casualty rate of shipwrecks and things was probably about five percent in any given year. So, you know, you had a pretty good chance of getting through. And um, the Franklin family actually had always been quite of inveterate travelers. You see, Franklin actually had two brothers who were seamen, seafarers, and he had a brother in law who was a sea captain who was one of the earliest uh, people to bring Irish immigrants from Ireland to America. So yeah, it was something they sort of got into, and Frank enjoyed the sea. I mean, he was actually loved the sea. Um, he mm-hmm. wanted to be a sailor. Um, but you're right. Yes, I mean, it, he was somebody who was prepared to sort of up sticks, go somewhere else, and uh, and and put down roots in a new place. But that is kind of a, an American
0: phenomenon. Mm. Um, when he went to France, I believe he was a diplomat for the a new nation. But why did he go back to England? What did he, you said he, one thing, he started doing some genealogical research.
1: Well, well, there were two things, really. Um, First of all, you see, he he had, during the 1750s, uh, during the French and Indian War, of course, he had become heavily involved in in diplomacy, um, diplomacy between Pennsylvania and the other colonies as they tried to uh, organize their war effort. But also, he was involved in Pennsylvania politics, and he actually went to um, to, um, to London on behalf, as a, as a, as a kind of agent for the, uh, the Pennsylvania Assembly, the Colonial Assembly, to represent them in London. So there's a bit of diplomacy involved. But of course, he was also keen to go to London to live because, of course, by this time, he had an international scientific reputation. And people in London wanted to see him. And, you know, there's a very interesting document that I came across, which is not directly relevant to this, which is a diary in London, not Franklin's diary, but a diary kept by a friend of his, Uh, which is in the British Library, and it's an appointments diary. uh, And it shows you um, Franklin being lionized, you know, being wined and dined. As soon as he got off the boat in 1757, he was almost immediately kind of um, um, taken out for dinner by just about everybody in the scientific and literary world in London because they were very curious to see him because he'd made such a huge reputation with his electrical experiments and the lightning and all the rest of the lightning rods and so on. Um, and you can see him sort of fitting in instantly. And of course, instantly, of course, they, they presented him. With the, they gave him a medal for the Royal Society and, they, and they, uh, he was given an honorary doctorate by St. Andrews University. He went down extremely well.
0: Hmm. Yet when he was a young man, he was very fearful of, of failure. How, how did that change his life?
1: Well, that's what I argue. I mean, that's one of the things that I think is really important. You know, if you look closely at the autobiography, you'll find that Franklin writes a lot about people who were failures. And he was a great success. But he writes a lot about friends and rivals of his and people who came across in business who really came to quite a bad end. Um, people whose lives were destroyed whether by drink or, or by, just by bad luck, actually, um, or by simply just never getting a grip on themselves. Um, I think he was very conscious of this because cause this was an age, particularly in London, really, where the difference between success and failure was enormous. Uh, there was no safety net. Uh, and if you failed, you just went down 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 into destitution and And the writer, I think, is to compare with Franken is the only English novelist who's really been influenced by franken and that's Charles Dickens. If you read Charles Dickens's novels and you put them next to Franklin's autobiography, you'll find all kinds of parallels because Dickens was also somebody who wrote a great deal about people who who collapsed into debt. you know they go bankrupt. that's the something mm-hmm. Dickens was fond of. Um, about people whose lives are ruined in one way or another. And, of course, Dickens was incredibly conscious, I think, as Franklin was, of just what a huge gulf there was in this kind of early modern 18th-century society, a huge gulf between success and failure, between the rich and the poor.
0: Hmm. They did their years overlap. I mean, Dickens came later, did he not?
1: Uh, Absolutely, yeah. Dickens wasn't born until 1812, and Franklin died in 1790. But you see, Dickens... um, Certainly, read uh, Franklin's work. Um, you know, there was, a, there was an English philosopher of the nineteenth century, uh, century, Thomas Carlyle. Carlyle was a great friend of Dickens; they were very close friends. And Carlyle is one of the few English, or he's actually Scottish, actually one of the few British people in the nineteenth century who really studied Franklin's work. And I think that's probably where Frank, uh, Dickens said about Franklin. But if you take David Copperfield by Dickens, if you read these descriptions in, in, in David Copperfield of, for example when David Copperfield has to walk from London to Dover to escape from the the dreadful place where he's he's working. You compare that with Franklin's description in in his autobiography of his journey from Boston to Philadelphia, you will find that very similar. And I think my view is that Dickens knew Franklin's work and he was kind of modelling some parts of David Copperfield on Franklin.
0: You were brought up... um... Franklin's uh, electricity experiments and other scientific experiments. How did he get involved in that? Well, he, he'd always been involved. You see, as I say, the family, you see, because they were craftsmen
1: and also high literate, they had also always had an interest in science, Strange enough. Even before Franklin was born, even before the Franklins had left England, they were associated in Northamptonshire, where they lived, in the 1650s and 60s with a local scientist. The local parish minister, the clergyman, it was a chap called John Palmer, who appears in the book, Archdeacon Parler, and he was actually one of the most distinguished mathematicians in England in the period. Generation before Newton, but still a very distinguished mathematician. And he was a friend of the Franklin family. And Franklin was aware of this, and he actually mentions it in, in, in his autobiography, but it's never really been explored by the historians before. So the Franklin family had always been exposed in England to mathematical and scientific work. Franklin then picked up on it really as a teenager when he was reading. I mean, Franklin—I've never been able to show. By the time he was 15, Franklin was pretty familiar with the broad outlines of Sir Isaac Newton's physics and gravity itself. And then, when Franklin was in London in the 1720s, in the mid-1720s, he met some famous scientists in Mm -hmm. London, uh, people who were associated with Newton, close associates with Newton. And then he read more and more. And when he founded the library company in Philadelphia in the early 1730s, some of the first books they acquired were the best current textbooks of physics and chemistry which were available at right the time. So he sort of soaked himself in the reading. And then I think what happened was in the 1740s, when it, there was a kind of electrical craze in Europe, a craze for electrical research, Franklin heard about it, he read about it, he was aware of it, and he suddenly discovered that he had this extraordinary aptitude for doing this kind of research. Couple that with all the reading he'd done and his skills with his hands mm-hmm. the craftsman, and he had the recipe for a really brilliant scientific career.
0: And you uh, end the book in the 1740s, uh, right, when he's starting his electrical experiments?
1: That's right. I wanted to bring it to the really crucial moment, the kind of turning point of his life, up until that point, he's been in business. You know, he's been a printer. He's had. A, he's been the clerk to the Pennsylvania, the clerk to the Pennsylvania Assembly. He's been the postmaster. He's been busy with working. You know, very very hard indeed. At this point, he's just reached the age of forty. Actually, just about forty-one, and he's got. To, he can afford to take a little bit of time off to start doing something creative in science. And that's the moment when he starts the electrical work the winter of 1746 to 47. And and from that moment forward, he suddenly becomes his aptitude. And from that moment forward, he he starts to develop the kind of, he he commands the kind of esteem and prestige, not only in Pennsylvania, but outside Pennsylvania, which will kind of propel him onto the international arena. So This is, if you like, the kind of great turning point in his life. Before that, he's been a Philadelphia man, highly respected, basically, a Philadelphia man. After that, he becomes this kind of international celebrity.
0: Mm that we speak today of optics how things look and uh, franklin benjamin franklin is frequently portrayed in movies or television shows but usually as an older man what what did he look like as a young man
1: well we can't be exactly sure because of course the only picture the first picture we've got of him is, is an oil painting that was painted in about 1745 when he was about 39 um And it's 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 not a great picture actually. I mean, it kind of bears some resemblance to the other, frankly. But it wasn't the artist wasn't really kind of master of his craft. However, we can tell from other things that that that, that as a younger man, you know, in his teens and twenties, as a youth and young man, he was he was he was robust. I mean, he was athletic. Um, We know that he was a very keen swimmer, uh, very strong swimmer in his youth. Uh, He also appears to be a boxer as well. He was about five foot ten or eleven, which means that he was probably about four inches taller than the English average at the time. And because he was a printer, he had to be muscular, because printing was a very physically demanding enterprise. You know, keeping the printing press going, carrying around these drapery trays of lead type, you know, it required you to be robust, strong. Mm-hmm. And he tells us himself. And again, another little point which, which I didn't really go mention in the book, but I think he's an important which is that you know, the Boston Boston was a healthy place to bed England. I mean, the Boston diet, people have always made fun of it, the bean and the tod and so on. But actually, if you think about it, that's a really healthy diet. Mm-hmm. And the water quality was better. And if you look at what happened in terms of the life expectancy and fertility of people in Boston and New England, it was a lot better than the old country. So mm-hmm. when Franklin came to England as a young man, people were immediately struck by how fit and strong he looks. Mm-hmm. And that, strangely enough, is something you find in the revolutionary period, that the fish were often struck when Americans visited London, or when they saw American soldiers during the Revolutionary War, about how physically strong and fit they looked compared to the, the, the English.
0: Again, with these uh, fictional portrayals that I've seen of Franklin, I get the impression that he was quite a womanizer. But you say his wife, Deborah, uh, was really a very strong uh, woman and neglected by biographers.
1: Well, I certainly think that. I think it's a bit shameful, a bit scandalous, actually, that that she's had as little attention as she does get. And and oddly enough, you know, some of the people who are most dismissive of Benjamin Franklin, of of Deborah, are some women who write about Franklin, oddly enough. Uh, And it's a bit strange. But, but, um, yeah, I I try to do my best to kind of bring her back into the story. Now, the problem we've got here is that there's not very much that survives by way of documents relating to to, to Deborah Franklin. Um, We've got his description of her. And there's a few letters written by her, but there's not very much. Now, but what I tried to do was kind of fill out the story a bit and give her her own role. Uh, and the way I did it was to look at her English roots. Now, she was almost certainly born in Birmingham in England um, in the early 1700s and then came over as an immigrant with her father a few years later. Now, that's a really interesting point because Birmingham was the cradle in England of the Industrial Revolution. That was the industrial city par excellence. And if you look into her family, what they did in England, what they did in America, kind of people they were, you discover that actually they were people kind of immersed in that sort of thing. They were involved in the iron trade. They were involved in in, 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 in craftsmanship of various kinds, in metalworking and so on. So she came out of that same sort of culture. And one thing i point out is, you know, that in England, it was not uncommon in England that when a craftsman or even a printer died, uh, if he died young, it was not uncommon for his wife to actually take on the business. She would have to hire people to do the manual side of the work, but she could actually carry on the business. And there were cases of this in England in the 18th century, in London, which are well-documented. And my view is that if, let's say, Franklin had passed away a young, as his brother did. Franklin's brother, who was a printer, died at 38. If Franklin had passed away, I think Deborah would have been perfectly capable of taking the business forward. Because you can see from the fact the way she... She was his bookkeeper. She kept his accounts. And you can see from that how careful she was with it and... and and how hard she was, that she actually was someone with business acumen
0: herself. Nick Bunker is author of Young Benjamin Franklin, The Birth of Ingenuity, published by Knopf, um, and he's been joining us on the Historian's Podcast. We have a, just a couple of minutes left. W- what is uh, Franklin's uh, legacy today? Well,
1: it's a good question. Opinions differ about this. I mean, I... I, I Obviously, the, the the thing that tends to be most attention is his kind of political, diplomatic role towards the end of his life, during the Revolutionary period, and with the making of the Constitution in Philadelphia in 1787. Um, and indeed, you know, that's immensely important. But, you know, I'm, I'm in Philadelphia now, and if... I think if Franklin were here now, and he and I were going for a walk at lunchtime around Philadelphia, I think what he would most be impressed by was all the evidence of the kind of scientific work that going on here. I mean... You know, people don't often think about this, but Philadelphia has, I was good at the University of Pennsylvania, you've got the, mm. the medical research facilities here, you've got the teaching hospitals, uh, hospitals all around Philadelphia, you've got the pharmaceutical companies. I think Franklin would be most interested to see this kind of infrastructure of science and research and development in the United States. I think that actually would be the thing that he would find most... Um, uh, most interesting, and I think he would be doing his utmost to try and kind of you know, make that kind of continue and do, and and enhance it further. I think the politics, I think today's politics, I think he would, I think he would just roll his eyes and kind of um <laughs> a return to the laboratory. You know.
0: Well, that could be. Uh, and how's it? Uh, your book's just out. Uh how goes the book tour?
1: Well, yeah, this is actually my second book tour. The book came out was the end of last year, and I was over here uh, then. And now I'm over here again, concentrating on the Philadelphia area. But that's going very well. And uh, what I'm doing is I'm going to be uh, giving a, a lecture on Frank's birthday at the American Philosophical Society here, yeah. which, of course, is the society that he founded. It. It'll be his what his um, think it'll be 303rd birthday.
0: Really? What, what day? What date is it? 13. Sorry,
1: 13. Well, sorry. he was born on he was born on January the sixth, 1706, according to the old calendar used at the time. But that's now January the seventeenth, because of course it changed in the middle oh. of the 18th century. Very it changed in the, the Julian to Gregorian calendar. So the it, January the seventeenth is the, is the his actual birthday. Uh,
0: Nick Bunker, author of Young Benjamin Franklin: The Birth of Ingenuity. I'm Bob Cudmore. This has been the Historians Podcast.